are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos. And we are picking up this evening on page 403, if you're following along in the text. And we are starting with letter B at the very bottom of the page with St. Ephraim the Syrian. And if you remember, we've been speaking about the distinctive marks of humility. And uh, it's a rather lengthy, as you've probably noticed, hypothesis among those that we've read. And uh, so a lot of time is spent presenting to us the, the, the Father's writings, but also, again, these wonderful images through their illustrative stories. And uh, we finished up last week with Anthony being told that there was a cobbler, if you remember, in the city who uh, had reached a, a level of greater sanctity. And part of the reason was that uh, uh, Anthony was still had this conscious awareness of the South uh, that led to comparison, wondering if there was anyone who had pursued the ascetic life in a way that he had and to the extent that he had or had reached a level of sanctity. And this uh, turning toward the self uh, rather than toward God uh, weakened him in some, on some level. It still needed to be purified, this concern with comparison. And so tonight, though, we are picking up again with the beautiful writings of St. Ephraim the Syrian, always wonderful. The beginning of the bearing of fruit is the flower, and the beginning of humility is submission in the Lord. For he who acquire, acquires submissiveness is compliant, readily obedient, gentle, and accords honor to both small and great. And I believe that such a one will receive eternal life as a reward from the Lord. Uh, so again, Ephraim, always eloquent and beautiful, that it is this fundamental submissiveness to the Lord uh, in the sense of being attentive to his will in all that we do, which leads us then to be attentive to the other, uh, as if they were Christ, that we show honor to great and small and not make distinctions uh, between uh uh, individuals in regard especially in regards to their their value and if one is able to hold on to this uh, kind of submissiveness to the will of God then this will bring one to eternal life he goes on to say a brother said I asked this favor of the Lord 
that when my brother tells me to do something, I might say to myself, he is your Lord, listen to him. That if another brother should give me an instruction, I might say again in my mind, he is the brother of your Lord. And that if a boy should order me to do something, I might say, listen to the son of your Lord. And thus opposing hostile thoughts, the brother fulfilled everything he was told without disturbance and with the cooperation of divine grace, which furnished him with the humility that he had. And so avoiding opposing thoughts to this kind of radical submissiveness, that the evil one is always looking for ways to uh, ambush us, if you will, in the spiritual battle. And this morning I was reading a little bit from Hezekiah the priest, and he says, as a wolf will seek a higher position defensively when attacked by hounds, uh, in a similar way, in the spiritual life, we should do so when it comes to our thoughts or temptations to take up the defensive position, the higher position, as it were, uh, that involves a constant uh, invocation of the name of Jesus. This allows us to see uh, what is coming toward us in order that we might defend ourselves. And certainly in the battle for humility, as we will see that as the battle goes on, uh, it becomes more fierce. And so this uh, watchful, attentive watchfulness and uh, this defensive position in regards to the thoughts becomes more and more important, uh, even to the example uh, that we are given here today to respond in kind to every person who comes to us, uh, whether or not uh, they have any position as our superior. And basically, this is what Ephraim is saying, that we would respond with as much speed and readiness as we would to the Lord himself. Letter C from Abba Isaiah. He who has humility has no tongue with which to reprove one who is negligent or one who disdains him. Nor does he have eyes to observe another's failings or ears to hear what does not benefit his soul. Nor does he have any relation to anything other than his own sins. Rather, he is peaceable towards all men on account of God's commandment and not on account of friendship. For if one fasts for six days and gives himself over to mighty labors, all of his labors are in vain if he does not traverse the way of humility. And so we've talked often in the past about being in a constant state of receptivity in and through our senses. And so similarly, Abba Isaiah is telling us here that uh, we are not to be negligent when it comes to anything that we might hear or even what our eyes might see seem to be revealing to us uh, or that we would not expose ourselves uh, in a negligent way to things that are said or done that would draw us towards sin. And uh, in doing this, as well as seeking to be uh, peaceable towards all, that we gain this level of humility. And it has to be something that is sustained 
constantly, that we can't labor, as it were, as uh, Abba Isaiah tells us, for six days the week, and then for the seventh, uh, let down our guard and give ourselves over to pride, uh, because it will undo, in a moment, perhaps what we've struggled uh, to overcome over the course of decades. And so again, with St. Isaac the Syrian, we remember uh, we do not have a Sabbath day rest within this world when it comes to the spiritual life, and especially in regards to humility because of what can be undone if it is neglected. Number two, brother, accustom your tongue to say, forgive me, and humility will come to you. Love humility, and it will shield you from your sins. And so, as with so many of the uh, ascetic practices that we've talked about, and the virtues that we've talked about, that we are to learn to love them and desire them. It's, it's only when uh, our pursuit of such things becomes more than uh, discipline or an obligation that, but where we really see the beauty of these virtues and the fruit that they bear in our life and begin to pursue them as such, uh, that we will be transformed. And one of the most difficult things for us uh, to say, and I think this is why Isaiah brings it forward, is to accustom our tongue to say, forgive me, that it is often a very difficult thing, even when we know that we are in the wrong, that there's something very humbling about about that to so freely acknowledge our fault in a set of circumstances and to take responsibility for it that uh we will often begrudgingly uh let an argument come to an end uh and hope that we move back to being gracious with each other but uh somehow never actually say the words forgive me or i'm sorry and when we do that, we might move back to uh, being gracious with, uh, with each other, but there can be a lingering wound that is left uh, that then can fester and become resent resentment on the part of the one who's been wounded. And our care for the spiritual well-being of others should be such that uh, we, we would never want uh, anything uh, that is an obstacle to remain between us, uh, so that we would willingly say these words, forgive me, in order that the wound might be healed. Number three, do not be lethargic in any labor, for labor, hardship, and silence give birth to humility, and humility forgives every sin. Know this, that to the extent that a man is careless, he thinks in his heart that he is a friend of God. But if he is freed from the passions, he is ashamed to raise his eyes to heaven in the presence of God, because he then sees how far away from God he is. And so, you know, again, we are brought back to the need for asceticism, to labor, for these virtues, again, to the point that they become deeply ingrained and that we love them, uh, because otherwise they will not be formed. And if we become careless, 
we can be assured that they aren't going to uh, be formed deeply in our hearts. And so we have to be careful not to, again, estimate ourselves uh, uh, highly in the sense of our, our virtue, because what humility does is that it, it forms the heart so clearly, again, that we look only at the self and our own sin. And so we become able to see uh, the flaws and the ways that we have perhaps turned away from the love of God or where we need healing. We've often heard the stories where a saint will say, I'm the worst of all sinners. I'm the most grave of all sinners. And in fact, before receiving Holy Communion uh, in the Ruthenian Rite, uh, there's a long prayer that is said uh, where uh, one of the sentences in, uh uh, ends uh, of with our asking for forgiveness, uh, for I'm a sinner of which I am the, the, the worst or the first. And uh, and so it's not just a pious uh, saying on the part of these saints that because of their humility, they are able to truly see uh, that that is the truth about themselves in comparison not to their neighbor, but they're a comparison to God so much that it becomes difficult to lift the eyes to God and when engaged in prayer. So every person in prayer, if they have a humble heart, should be like the uh, publican in the temple beating his breast, uh, acknowledging uh, the, the poverty of his sin. Any thoughts or comments so far on, on what has been said? before we move on. Okay. Number four on page 404. A man had two slaves and he sent them into the field so that each of them could harvest his stada at the rate of seven per day. The first of these slaves put forth all of his efforts to fulfill what he had been commanded by his master, but could not succeed in completing it since the task was beyond his capabilities. The other, being lazy, said to himself, who can do so much work every day? Scorning his orders, he paid them no heed and fell asleep. He would sleep for an hour, then spend his time yawning for another hour. For the next hour, he would turn from side to side like a door on its hinges. Thus did he while away the whole day aimlessly. When night fell, they both went to their owner. He questioned both of them. When he found out about the remarkable work of the first, even though he had not succeeded in carrying out the assignment, he was nonetheless impressed by his eagerness and complimented him. But the lazy slave he dismissed from his house as a despiser of his commandments. Far apart, let us not be faint-hearted in our labor or trial, but let us expand, expend all the might of our souls in working with humility. I believe that God will thus receive us with his saints who labored exceedingly. Uh, the description that Isaiah gives at the beginning of this almost sounds like uh, our seeking to rise from bed in the morning, awake, yawn, roll over, yawn, go back to sleep, and repeat uh, over and over again. Uh, until one finally drags oneself out of bed. Uh, but uh, 
the image here is an important one that because uh, the detail in particular of being asked what seems beyond us can be something that makes us then uh, step back and say, refuse to do it or refuse to exert ourselves in any fashion. And we can often do this when we think of the saints or when we think of the gospel and the teachings of Christ. And uh, we even hear it echoed within the gospel. This is a hard teaching. Who can embrace it? Uh, that leads many to walk away. And so often the, the love that is asked of us, even though we are promised the grace to, uh, to fulfill the command, uh, we will often simply uh, show where our hearts lie that we are no lover of our master either. And so despise the commandment and do not uh, give ourselves over, even to strive for it, uh, as we're called to strive to enter by the narrow way. And so the again, the, the Christian life and the pursuit of virtue is something that we are to be giving ourselves over fully, even if we find wrapped ourselves wrapped in our own weakness, our own sin, uh, struggle with negligence, laziness, that despite these things, we would be giving ourselves over fully. And uh, it's interesting that the image here is, you know, starts out with the morning, uh, not to overly focus upon this, but I think, uh, you know, in the morning, to give ourselves to God in prayer is to give God the first fruits of the day. And before we begin anything, before we set our hand to anything that uh, we are going to engage in that day, that we would give him the first fruits of our life, our first waking moments, and, and then as long as we can, before we set ourselves to the work. And especially in the spiritual life, I mean, this shows certainly our love for God, but also our understanding of the need for his grace, uh, not only to pursue the life of virtue, but to pursue all that we engage in throughout the course of the day uh, uh, by his grace and to see these things through the lens of that relationship with him. And uh, often we, when it comes to the spiritual life and the life of prayer, we can be hesitant to set specific times for us, for ourselves, and to, uh, you know, etch it in stone, as it were. Uh, but I think in and of itself, this can reveal something very important, uh, that we are, there's an unwillingness there uh, to commit our, ourselves to that which is the best and the beautiful. And uh, this, you know, there can be certain reasons, of course, where a person, you know, might have to be up and out the door because they're, you know, a nurse or a policeman or a doctor. Uh, but, you know, I think in our day-to-day -day life, uh, to be cutting out, you know, this, you know, that and the earliest portions of our day to discipline ourselves every single day. Uh, because, um, and including our day off, you know, that, that 
again, this is the most important relationship within our life. And it's not as though we can't give ourselves a little additional rest here and there. Uh, but so often, because of our that our lack of commitment, uh, we do not pursue either the life of prayer or the life of virtue with any consistency or constancy. And when we lack that, then over the course of time, we're naturally going to lose zeal. When there is an inconstant nature to our spiritual life, and when we pray when we want, and when we feel like it, or when we have the time, then it's going to breed this kind of inconstancy within us, not only, again, in that life of prayer, but in our vigilance with our thoughts and our struggle for virtue. And so we want to begin uh, this habit of self-discipline right from the get-go, the first moments of the day. Okay, number five. Not wounding the conscience of your neighbor gives birth to humility. And humility gives birth to discernment. And discernment destroys all the passions after separating them one from another. It is therefore impossible for discernment to come to you unless you first cultivate it as the farmer cultivates the, his garden. For the benefit of your soul, you should first rest from looking at the deeds of others. This quietude gives birth to asceticism. Asceticism gives birth to weeping, and weeping gives birth to the fear of God. Fear of God gives birth to humility. Humility gives birth to discernment, and discernment gives birth to foresight, and foresight to love. Love renders the soul healthy and frees it from the passions after all of this. A man then comes to understand how far he is without these virtues from God. This is one of those paragraphs that it would be good to write, memorize, or that uh, it lays out this movement uh, within one's life uh, of how we pursue the virtue of humility and how the particular virtues are tied together and where we find our strength in the pursuit of them. And so this would be a good one either to memorize or to have written down in a notebook that we go back to frequently, uh, because I think it holds true in, in the pursuit of so many of the virtues for, for ourselves, uh, that there is this sort of tie that leads us back uh, to the deepening of certain virtues. That humility, he says, leads... Uh, uh, not wounding the conscience of your neighbor gives birth to humility and humility gives birth to discernment that uh, that the virtue itself gives rise to uh, discernment and then discernment to other virtues and ultimately they all lead back to humility and uh, and so to be able to uh, know and see clearly the things that are pleasing to God uh, are, is going to be something that is so important within our life. Uh, not wounding the conscience of your neighbor gives birth to humility. That I found this interesting and that uh, 
that we would not seek to distort the other's capacity to know with God, to see the things of God. And, uh, and so no action of ours or word or deed would diminish uh, a person's capacity to come to see and know God, uh, which means that every way that we engage another person, every action in our day-to-day life, no matter how small, is to be something that would elevate the other, not to wound their conscience, not to inhibit their ability to know with God. And the only way we can get there ourselves is with this gift of discernment that uh, allows us to have, to see and make distinctions between what is right and wrong, what is rooted in he who is reality and what is rooted in the illusions of the evil one. Number six. Not believing that your toil is pleasing to God leads to your being protected by God's help. For he who has dedicated his heart to God with piety and truth, that is sincerely, cannot be preoccupied with the thought of whether he is pleasing to God. As long as his conscience reproves him for various bad deeds, he is a stranger to freedom. For as long as there is that which reproves the conscience, there is that which accuses sin. And as long as there is accusation, there's no freedom. And so it's an interesting thought that, you know, not to waste our time and wondering if we are pleasing to God, that it is enough for us to be attentive to what God has given us and to respond to its call that God has given us all conscience, this capacity to know with God, to know the mind of God, and a faculty that rebukes us when we have turned away from that path that accuses us. And and so this is the gauge, if you will, for us and what we are to be most attentive to. And even there, uh, Paul warns us that even if my conscience does not rebuke me, uh, I place no confidence in that because I know that I don't see everything, all ends. But uh, I think Abba Isaiah is telling us, you know, don't waste your time in wondering or speculating about your own holiness uh that uh what you should be most attentive to is simply responding to what has been revealed and responding to uh again the the aid that god has given has given us any thoughts about that about conscience or or anything that abba isaiah has had to say Okay, so deeper we go with uh, each father uh, into the nature of humility. From Abba Mark, just as it is foreign to one who is repenting to be prideful, so also it is impossible for one who willfully sins to be humble of mind. Humility is not the accusation of one's conscience, but the most profound and sure knowledge of God's grace and his compassion for mankind. 
If we have cultivated humility, we have no need of chastisement. All of the, I'm sorry, all of the evils and woes that happen to us are the result of our pride. For if the messenger of Satan was given to the apostle Paul to test him, lest he become conceited, assuredly much more will Satan himself be assigned to trample on us, the proud, until we are humbled. So if we have humility, and again, so again, our vision of the, the beauty of humility uh, broadens out and we begin to see, and we are told here that uh, if we are hum humble, it in the end, if we're truly humble, that it pushes out all sin, that the accusation uh, of sin from our conscience reveals to us that we have given over ourselves to pride, that we've trusted in ourselves and our own judgment too much and not in the grace of God. And so we've fallen into sin. It, our conscience rebukes us and in the process reveals our lack of humility. Uh, whereas if uh, we are humble, then we are not going to trust ourselves, but only the grace of God and seek only the, the things of God. And, uh, and, and so we see humility then, again, isn't just this low uh, estimation of oneself. It becomes really the, the protector of the, the life of virtue for us, but also an indicator uh, for us uh, that you know, where, where we are within the spiritual life. We know that it has broken down. We know that we've become prideful, that we've fallen uh, because we were not humble before the Lord. Sean writes, what do you mean by know the mind of God? Well, conscience means exactly this, to know with God. And so to know the, the mind of God, what he wills. And so we are given a faculty that so long as it's properly formed, uh, guides us in our response to God's will. And it will rebuke us when we've turned away from it. Uh, again, it's not infallible. And this is why, again, the ascetic life which includes, you know, our immersion in divine revelation in the scriptures, our participation in the sacramental life, uh, and then engaging in the life of uh, prayer, uh, that we form the conscience more and more, that becomes more and more sensitive uh, to what God has revealed to us and being faithful to the truth. Okay. Our forefathers, he goes on to say, were masters of houses, possessed wealth, had wives, and provided for children. Still, in spite of all of this, they communed with God on account of their unbounded humility. However, we have withdrawn from the world, spurned wealth, and forsaken our relatives, thinking that we are close to God. Yet in spite of all of this, the demons jeer at us because of our pride. 
So we're warned that asceticism is not an end in itself and that we can become the most pitiable of all creatures if we've left all of these things and yet our, our hearts become filled with pride. Uh, what is the value of leaving all those things when those in the world who perhaps did not lead uh, a pure life, but nonetheless were humble before the Lord, were, were blessed? Louise writes, does humility imply that I am ongoingly aware that I am necessarily defective and fallible, even if I try to be virtuous? Well, it's an awareness that, that it's only by God that we see the truth, the fullness of the truth about ourselves, about the world, and about our actions. And uh, that we become our fullest self in union and communion with God. We've been made for him, made in his image and likeness. And so we are incomplete uh, uh, outside of that relationship with him. And, uh, and humility reveals that truth to us and leads us then to cling to God and love more and more. Uh, so I think humility also reveals to us our fundamental dignity and where life and love comes from. Uh, there's a negative element of this, of course, you know, that we will see the truth of our sin and our conscience will rebuke us. But humility will also reveal the truth, allow us to see uh, with a greater clarity the love and the mercy and the compassion of God and where true value and is found, what endures uh, in in this life, uh, it will re reveal that to us as well. Truth, again, truthful living. And so if we're living in that truth, then we're going to participate more and more fully in that life that God has made possible for us. So it should lead to joy, you know, for us as human beings. Again, it's not having this negative view of the self it's, again, a truthful vision of the self, that outside of this relationship, we are less than what we are meant to be. In it, we are raised up to participate in the fullness of the life of God. And I think <clears throat> this is where we often don't speak of the spiritual life very well, uh, in, in the sense of, holding forward uh, a negative anthropology. And, uh, you know, I have to admit, you know, I, I think my, I had the most negative anthropology. I think the moment that I became aware of the fathers and the passions and, and uh, to struggle with them, because that's all I could see. Uh, but the uh, more that I read the fathers over the course of the years, as I've often said, is that, you find within their writings more and more this language of desire, of wonder, of love, that their humility uh, leads them to see this great truth, certainly about themselves, but not abstracted from the love and the compassion of God. So to see the truth of oneself while being 
rooted in the life of prayer allows one to, to see the, the greatness of the love and mercy of God. So the fruit of it, as well as all of our ascetical practices, should be joyfulness. And this too, I think we see within the lives of the, <clears throat> excuse me, of the great saints. Philip Neri, who, who I've often mentioned, was a great ascetic and a great image for us living in the world because, you know, Philip lived in the heart of Rome uh, at a time where, you know, the church was very corrupt and the priests often were very corrupt. And yet he led the life of a desert monk in the city in the sense of his ascetic life, the depth of his prayer, uh, that uh, he lived on very little. Uh, and so this radical, simple life was humble before all. All the things that we're reading, he embraced and embodied. Uh, and often, even with Philip Neri, we will pass over the discipline that led to that. You know, it was from his youth that virtue and purity of heart was cultivated. Then prayer in his uh, late teens uh, along the Mediterranean, Mediterranean, in a place called Gaeta, he would uh, pray all night by the sea. And then in Rome, his first 10 years in Rome, in the catacombs, all night long in prayer. And so his joyfulness, again, wasn't just a, a natural quality of his personality, that uh, it was a joy uh, of the kingdom. And so and a joy that was rooted in the life of and the freedom of virtue. Okay. Uh, let's see. Did I finish that paragraph or we have one more to go? A little bit more to go there? Okay. For he who knows God sees the majesty of God inside his soul. I'm sorry, did I... We're on the paragraph above that. Is that correct? Our forefathers? No, I, I did that one. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> for he who knows God sees the majesty of God inside his soul as in a mirror and is humbled, as the blessed Job says, I've heard of thee before by the ear, but now mine eye hath seen thee. Wherefore, I have counted myself vow and have melted. I regard myself as dust and ashes. Those who emulate Job see God. Those who see him know him. If therefore we wish to see God, let us pity ourselves and be humble of mind, so that we may not only see him face to face, but also delight in him, having him dwelling and residing in us. For in this way, our folly will be made wise through his wisdom, and our weakness will be strengthened through his power, which will fortify us in our Lord Jesus Christ, who deemed us worthy of this bounty. So it's what we had been talking about, you know, certainly presented in a far more beautiful and eloquent way uh, by the fathers here. But, you know, Job you know, humbled in this radical way. We know that he loses everything and is, you know, put to the test, uh, you know, the evil one thinking that he would reject God once he had lost, you know, the things in this world that he valued the most. 
But what is revealed is that his faith in God and his love of God is what was valued most. And in this, while he sees his humility, his poverty, that he is dust, uh, that uh, this reality reveals something far greater, that uh, that God has raised him in his pity up to see him, you know, not simply face to face, but to share and participate in his life. That, you know, the questions that Job puts to God are really only answered for us in Christ. Why? You know, why, why do I have to undergo this? And the answer comes to those questions uh, in Christ, specifically with the cross. You know, on it, we, we see the world's sin, but we also see the depth of God's love and mercy and his willingness to take upon himself our sin, but also its death in order that we might share in the fullness of that life. So a beautiful paragraph. This would be another one to mark, to, to write down, because again, it captures this understanding for us of the beauty of the virtue and it, it being something to be desired rather than seeing something that weighs us down and oppresses us. It is meant to lift us up. Letter E from St. Diaticus. The virtue of humility is difficult to acquire. For the greater it is, the more the struggles needed to attain it. It comes to those who partake of holy knowledge in two ways. When the struggler for piety is halfway along the path of spiritual experience, then either on account of physical weakness or because of people who are inimical to those pursuing righteousness or on account of evil thoughts, he takes on a somewhat humbler attitude. So the first individual struggles and strives for humility. And he is brought along that path further uh, by these experiences where he, he experiences his physical illness. So again, some of the things that we often <clears throat> uh, resent or struggle against when we experience ourselves brought low physically where we experience our physical illness a physical illness or chronic illness or old age uh, uh, we often see the physical weakness but we don't allow it to draw us where it's meant to draw us which is to this deeper humility that yes our our lives and our destiny uh, is in the hands of god and we begin to experience that in the most concrete way in our very physical poverty. Uh, or we begin to be persecuted uh, by those who find the pursuit of righteousness to be inimical, that they, they think it's reprehensible, a waste of time, and uh, so hold it in low regard as well as those who pursue it in low regard or seek to undermine it and get in the way of it. So there's a kind of and malicious envy uh, 
that can emerge there too. So either they simply hold in contempt or they try to undermine it. Or he says, on a kind of evil thoughts. So sometimes we will begin to experience uh, affliction of, of thoughts uh, that are tied to passions that perhaps we've overcome but God will allow us to experience the affliction of them again to remind us and to, again to draw us more deeply into our reliance upon him and his grace that we should not see ourselves as being free outside of that relationship with him and so we're just brought one step further along the path of humility so this is the first individual that Diaticus is speaking about here. He goes on to say, but when the intellect is enlightened by divine grace and is completely conscious and assured of this enlightenment, then the soul possesses humility as a natural property, so to speak. For when it is imbued with divine grace, it can no longer become puffed up by love of glory, even when it fulfills the commandments of God unceasingly. Indeed, it considers itself more greatly humble by reason of its communion with God's forbearance. So a person can be drawn on uh, by God's grace to a perfection and humility where there is no attraction to sin any longer within the heart. But this being brought to this state leads not to self-focus, but an even more intense focus upon God, that one is humbled by the fact that God has drawn us into communion with us, that he forbears us in our weakness, that God would desire to draw us into the deepest intimacy with himself, weak and humble beings that we, we are. So we are sort of enwrapped in that mystery and perfected in it. So humility takes on a whole different quality here for us. It shows us that humility is part of the, the reality of God. And so as one is undergoes this process of deification, we become transformed more and more into God by grace. And if one of the qualities of God is humility, uh, then we begin to take on that quality as well. Not because we're striving with it or, again, because of any uh, <clears throat> particular attraction to esteem ourselves, but because of our participation in the life of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So, you know, virtue uh, becomes shows, shaped and perfected by the grace of God, that it draws us into participation in the life of God. Gives us a much different perspective on the spiritual life and the ascetic life. Because again, I think we often think about religiosity and spirituality as just saying no, or, you know, of, you know, restraining ourselves or, um, you know, having this negative vision of the self where again, we are presented with this hot, very high anthropology that God has created us for himself. And not only that, but he's drawn us into the very life of the most holy Trinity. What higher anthropology could you have than that? 
then that you know that we are to share in the divine life of our Lord. Let's see, Suzanne writes, <clears throat> lately I've been thinking more and more that we are infected with pride as children by parents who showed too much pride in our accomplishments, our abilities. That's where it begins. And the culture is more than happy to cement it into narcissism. It's like an evil bond develops between affection and praise so that affection is sought not in accordance with nature and grace, but to satisfy pride. One's heart contracts, no longer able to give itself in charity because of the demands it places on others to give excellence its due. Yeah, very well put, beautifully put. And, you know, this is sort of a hard thing to say, but sometimes, and I think, most parents would humbly acknowledge this, that sometimes children are the narcissistic extension of, of the parents, you know, that they embody qualities of their own and parents can want naturally to live vicariously through their offspring. And, uh, and our day and age, you know, has really elevated the child to such an ex extent that they are to be given as much as possible and that self-esteem is to be elevated and protected as much as possible too. And this does cement, I think the word is a good one, us in a kind of narcissism. You know, the ego, the self, the awareness of the self, often and most often to the exclusion both of God and others, becomes cemented in place. And what this gives rise to is little psychopaths or little narcissists. And, you know, uh, when it might, you know, be cute when they're little, but as soon as they reach a certain age, it can be uh, something very diff difficult to, to alter. Um, you know, when one grows up seeing oneself at the center of everything, then there is this expectation that the world will respond. And when it doesn't, a deep frustration, anger, resentment, wrath, rage against society. And it can lead to a kind of psychosis, even if it's deep enough, uh, certainly. I mean, how many mass shooters are resentful you know, of, of those around them. And uh, uh, and certainly it's not limited to that. I think it, it shows itself in every everyday life. And this is part of the, our struggle with sin. You know, it, it affects the formation of our identity uh, where ego becomes the center of everything. And rather than God and being the, the center of our world uh, around which we revolve and find our truest identity, we begin to fashion one uh, for ourselves, again, to his exclusion. And the, the distortions that come out of this are great. And, uh, you know, in terms of a person's vision of reality and capacity to engage in the world or have a kind of empathy 
for the other, to be able to see the other. I mean, it's striking these days how often one will see people videoing, you know, with their phone, camera phone, abuse taking place, somebody being beat up or assaulted, and they are, you know, capturing it with their phone, but they aren't seeking to respond to the other in their need. And, uh, and it's not only those who are being assaulted, but I think uh, human misery in any form is often just looked at, you know, from the spectator's position, as if somehow we are not involved in the life of the other. And so the, the height of the joy that comes through humility uh, is matched, I think, by the depths of the low and the darkness to where pride takes us. Uh, you know, that it seems to give joy, but I, I think ultimately pride isolates us from everyone around us. You know, when we can only see ourselves, then we only begin to look at others insofar as they can satisfy our needs in one measure or another, rather than human beings. So, so much revealed in these couple of paragraphs, and Susan Greek comment, Anthony writes, this is soft, it's gentle, it's like Dante's paradise in which love is a force of motion. I like this better than the way Roman Catholics of our time and country, not like the medievals like St. Bernard, pass on the faith. Uh, soft, uh, interesting choice of words. <laughs> uh, the, the path to it isn't necessarily soft, uh, but I, I get what you're saying, that I think it's presenting the virtue to us in its fullness, and allowing us, even if we only catch a glimpse of it, its beauty and why it should be pursued and the fruit that it bears in our life and how it connects us to others as well as to God. And uh, I think when we fall into, and I don't think this is only Roman Catholics, I think it's Christians as a whole today, you know, a kind of legalism, moralism. And we, we know that there are, are moral aspects to our life. We're, we're reading about it all the time here. But uh, when we fall into this sort of kind of legalistic, moralistic view of life, then we aren't seeing uh, the fullness of what we are called to as human beings. You know, our anthropology is very, is, is very low. One would say it's not fully Christian. It's more uh, Calvinistic in, in that sense, you know, that we're, we see ourselves as dung covered over by snow, you know, scrape, scrape off the snow and, you know, what you find. Uh, whereas I think what we find here is something much different. It acknowledges the truth of the wounds of our sin, uh, but it tells us what the healing of grace offers us and where it takes us, which is to something beautiful. Sharon writes, Sharon Fisher, uh, 
earlier tonight, opening the day with prayer and giving God first fruits is something I can relate to. To this point, I haven't felt a purpose for early morning prayer as opposed to prayer at any other hour. This resonates with me. I'm such a novice. Thank you. It takes, yeah, I think even when maybe one isn't so much a novice, I think it's a hard habit of mind to break because we've often talked about how we are driven so often by fear or anxiety about all the things that we have to do. And part of that becomes is because so many of those things become abstracted from that relationship with God. And so our tendency, either because of laziness or negligence, not willing to be able to get us ourselves out of bed, or uh, being driven by fear, we jump into those things to the neglect of God. And in that sense, they become idols for us. They become more important, have greater value. We will turn to God when we are able Eric writes, I agree with Suzanne. My mother was very proud of me, which fed my ego so much that my arrogance was off the charts. This alienated me from my peers, and I never overcame it until high school. I literally didn't learn what the word humble meant until I was a teen. I loved her dearly, but it was clearly deleterious. Uh, uh, God saw fit that she passed away when I was 13, no doubt to spare me from the worst of it. That's terrible to say, but as her son, I can say it. Uh, I think high school, which you mentioned here, uh, typically is one of the most brutal places and is going to relieve us of any uh, arrogance because, you know, high schoolers are the most brutal uh, of individuals, the most brutal to each other. And I don't care what gifts you have. It's not an easy time to go through. Uh, but I understand what you're saying. You know, that, that it's very hard to break away. And I think we want to see part of that is rooted in love. You know, there can be this desire in parents to give uh, their children what they feel that they did not have. And if they did not have support, you know, they might swing in this opposite direction, you know, of elevating uh, their own children. And I think this is why it's so important that our minds and hearts are formed by what has been revealed to us uh, in and through Christ, that uh, we can go in either direction. And, uh, you know, if we are left to our own uh, way of seeing things or our own experience of the world and, you know, being treated like dirt, you know, growing up can have, you know, negative effects too, because that's not humility. It's not teaching humility. I mean, what it does is it, it lowers that self-esteem to the point where one cannot see oneself as loved or lovable uh, and sometimes not lovable by God and uh, can be as, as uh, equally d damaging. And, um, you know, I think he hearing all this, we want to be mindful that, you know, God has this capacity to work through all of our experiences, to make all things work for the good, as we're told, of those who love him. 
And so whatever our experience might be growing up and whatever wounds we might bear, uh, that God can do extraordinary things. Uh, at, uh, when I did that retreat at the monastery, and we had a good laugh about this one day, but, you know, I talked to them about, you know, there's not one monk that's buried on the monastery grounds that went to his grave well-adjusted, that, you know, that's not the goal of our life and not necessarily going to be the fruit of our pursuit of sanctity, that we all bear wounds from life. And some of the monks who came to that monastery over the course of the years had deep wounds and they were drawn to the monastery precisely for that reason, uh, to seek God and to seek healing. And, uh, and in some ways, I think it's the same reason we come to these groups you know, every week uh, to sit at the feet of the fathers, you know, that we might come to find healing and hope of either, you know, to deal with the things that we've struggled with throughout our life or to come to have a greater vision of the love of God for us. And, uh, and the more that we sometimes see those defects in character, uh, as Lee says here, uh, when we see them and when God reveals them, there is no shame that, you know, as God illuminates those dark places within our hearts, uh, it's to draw us to himself, that we might be unshackled, you know, was part of the reason that we remain in the dark is often that shame that we have uh, about ourselves and past things in our life. And that's not part of the love of God. Uh, Suzanne writes, Father said, pride isolates. Absolutely. It does. You know, I think um, there isn't a happiness there. You know, I think the more that one becomes self-focused, you know, if God is the source of life and love, you know, the governor of life, the Lord of love, then if our focus is upon ourselves, we're not going to be able to see that. And we're going to experience kind of a desperate loneliness and emptiness and that we seek to fill and we might fill it for a short period of time with something that seems like it, but in the end it doesn't. And uh, it's you know only when we are turned fully to him that we come out of that uh, isolation and are also able to experience communion with others uh, who are as weak and as broken as we are and find joy in that with that there you know our eyes are not fixed upon the natural flaws of others but we're able to see with a greater clarity their goodness and that and so we can find joy in a multitude of relationships and i think when we are immersed in pride and when we are in the, this culture that takes this morbid delight in tearing people apart you know then you know it, it's really a sign that people are feeling pretty alone because when you're unhappy you reach out and you know criticize and um it's the humility that frees us from that. So that's 8.30. And uh, 
is a good place to end for the night. So again, it just keeps opening up wider and wider for us each week, and it becomes more and more beautiful. Uh, thanks again for all of your comments. Just extraordinary uh, tonight, as so many nights, uh, has taken us where we probably wouldn't go reading it on our own. So thank you. And what we close is, is always with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.